You're listening to Work in Progress. I'm Ramona Schindelheim, Editor-in-Chief of Working Nation. Work in Progress explores the rapidly changing workplace through conversations with innovators, educators, and decision makers, people with solutions to today's workforce challenges. As the U.S. labor force continues to grow, we're seeing that it is requiring ever higher levels of educational attainment. A new report out by the Georgetown University Center on Education and Workforce is predicting that by 2031, 72% of new and replacement jobs are going to require some kind of post-secondary education. Joining me now to talk about this is Dr. Nicole Smith, CEW's chief economist and co-author of the new report, After Everything. Nicole, thank you very much for joining the podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. You know, we talk a lot here at Working Nation about what it takes to get into a good paying job. And these jobs are changing all the time. Let's set the playing field where we're at right now, 2023. What kind of education do we need for most jobs right now? So most of the jobs require some type of post-secondary education and training beyond high school. And I'm very specific to say beyond high school because it's we're not necessarily talking about a bachelor's degree only or a master's degree or some sort of you know, technical PhD or something like that. We're actually talking about skills in the middle. We're talking about certificates, test-based certifications, vocational training, licenses, you know, that deal with these technical jobs, associate's degrees as well. Sub-baccalaureate is, is still significant in addition to the bachelor's degrees and above. So anything post high school. And what's interesting for us is we, we need to have a conversation about where the trend is, what's happened over the last 30, 40, 50 years, and what we perceive to be the uh, upcoming trend in, in job growth. That leads to my next question. Where were we in the past? I mean, I know that when I was in high school, there was a big push for some people, usually young boys, <laughs> to go into, you know, these skilled training, go into wood shop, go into metal shop. And, you know, you can get great careers out of those things, learning some of those skills. Have we always had this kind of trend toward the training or is this all new? Well, there's, there's always been some trend towards training. So we're, we're just looking at the extent to which it's, it's, it's changed, what's the, the nature of the change. And I think what you pointed to in the past had a lot to do with the nature of the economy. We were still a manufacturing economy. We still depended largely on our factories and agriculture to boost the growth of jobs. But as time passed and time went on, you had a number of things happening internationally. Most of our manufacturing went overseas. So you you think of, you know, where who makes your refrigerators now? Who makes your appliances? Who makes who makes your your, your televisions now? And it's it's it, it went overseas to a lot of um, uh, countries like India and China. And the United States decided to elevate its production process to services. So it's, it's, we're not making the televisions, but we're distributing the televisions, we're marketing the televisions, we're sell, selling the televisions, and there's value added to that. But what this tells us is the type of skills you need now in order to survive in that economy isn't necessarily related to picking up the tool to produce it, but it's picking up the phone and, and being able to effectively communicate in order to sell it. 
So now we're kind of moving into a new era where there's a lot of talk about AI and other technology that is making it a more knowledge-based economy here in the U.S. And I would say, frankly, probably around the world, but here in the U.S., it's more knowledge-based. So let's look ahead. You're looking, you're projecting for the next decade. What do we need to tell young people, middle career workers, on what they need to learn and do to be able to be a thriving member of this economy? First, I'd like everyone, if you have the chance, to take a look at the cover page of this report. It's actually a handshake between what appears to be a human hand and a robot hand. And it, it tells us from looking at that image that we really believe that the, the, the future relationship between humans and robots is going to be symbiotic. There's a lot of talk about how generative AI is going to condition work or make work, work irrelevant or replace workers. Negative cells, right? It's, if you're able to tell a, a negative story, we've, we've all seen Rise of the Machines and we've all seen uh, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger act in that movie where the machines took over and everyone you know, was irrelevant as, as, as a result. But I think if we take away from our, our sci-fi knowledge just a little bit and we, we, we look to what the trends have been demonstrating, we see that the number of jobs that are created from technology exceeds the ones that are destroyed. So we're not saying that our jobs aren't going to be destroyed. There will be some that, that are lost, but we will have jobs that are also created. And the people who survive in those, in, in, the, in the new economy, would be the people who are able to use the technology, who are able to, in a symbiotic way, increase their own individual productivity with using, with using the technology. I think there's a, a clear difference between automation and generative AI, which is giving pause to the knowledge-based economy, because now we're saying it's not only you know, creating the technology to lift a really, really heavy package. But we know ChatGPT can write the letter to the manager <laughs> about, you know, the conditions of the, the factory and, and, and what we should be doing to improve outcomes. So I think here the concern is how are we to utilize um, information to increase our productivity? We will be talking more about uh, complementarity between humans and, and the technology, much more so than substitution between humans and technology. And the successful people will be the ones who are able to go back to school, get the, the long-term training that's needed, get the additional you know, 2.0, 3.0 for the machine so that they can successfully understand that you know, <laughs> long-term learning is now a part of our general uh, infrastructure. How do you think that breaks up in terms of the percentage? I know you gave give some numbers in there of people who need that four year degree as opposed to some just some additional training. We all know that indeed there's a hierarchical relationship between the level of attainment and how much you make. So we know that the the, the more education you have, the people who have BAs and, and graduate degrees in general on average, are going to earn more than people at high school or people at some college, in general. 
And the reason we always condition that <laughs> statement within general is there are always exceptions to the rule. There's some certificates that pay more than BAs. There's some BAs that pay more than graduate degrees. So how do you determine which individuals need what in order to succeed in this marketplace? It's a little bit of, well, we know we're going to need a little bit more. We know we have to, we sort of have to figure out which ones work. We have to, to think of career pathways, career lattices, exactly what's the next thing you're going to do and how are you going to use your educational tool, which is your training, which is your certificate, which is your certification in order to get you to that job. So the answer to that question is absolutely not everybody's going to need it, but all of our data, all of our information, all of our history points us to the fact that in order for you to move up in your job, in order for you to get that promotion, managers are requiring you to have higher levels of education, higher levels of skill, and you have to recognize lifelong learning as a thing now where you go back and you get that certification. You do mention in this report that we have a bifurcated economy now, and it's becoming even more so. So you're, when you talk about this, we have the that managerial, that professional economy and the blue collar economy. Talk a little bit about that. Explain where you see that going in the future. We have the only, the only consistency we have is change. So we know everything is just changing. And if you, if you were to think of, of your, your grandparents' economy and the way in which jobs were divided by industry, the biggest industries were still in manufacturing and they were in agriculture and they were in those industries that are in, in some ways are considered primary and, and, and secondary and, and, and standard human geography and economic terms. So the way in which the economy is changing now, it's, it's sort of moving into those that require extremely high levels of education and those that require, you know, middle skills or even some high school. And that's why we talk about the economy being bifurcated, because if you take the economy and you look at all of the general sets of occupations, you find that there are some occupations where you have definitely more than 60%, 70%, 80%, sometimes 90% of them requiring post-secondary education and training beyond high school. And then there are other occupations which require less of that education. And, and if I were to ask everyone who's probably listening to this podcast to tell me which ones, then most of you are going to come up with um, great answers. We know education as a sector definitely is going to require very, very high levels of education. STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, and math, it's going to require high levels of education. Community services and the arts also require high levels of education. And that's usually because if you think of community services as social workers and, and those people who are going to, you know, going to be getting in your head and, and, and talking to you about, um, about life and, and those types of decisions, we require them to, to be highly educated and they're going to have to go back to school for master's degrees and above. If you think about the blue collar economy, then it's still in some ways sales and office support jobs are still blue collar. And, and, and although you have a significant 
number of bachelor's degrees. It's still not overwhelmingly bachelor's. You can still get a, a pretty good job in sales with some type of high school diploma and training or some type of middle skills. There's food and personal services, there's healthcare support, and then there's the general production occupations, installation and maintenance occupations that tend to be tend to be blue collar. I think what we have to to recognize is that if you think of, okay, all those jobs, you definitely, if you want to be in, in that job, you're definitely going to have to have a bachelor's and above. And you think of the economy as, as telling you, these are the bachelor's and above jobs. These are the middle skills or high school jobs. In the future, the number of jobs available to middle skill and high school is shrinking and continues to shrink. And something that you would traditionally think of as a middle skill job, sales. Most people thought about sales as just middle skill. But sales jobs can be very, very technical, especially if you're selling, depending on what you sell, if you're selling, you know, sophisticated computers or, or if you're selling different types of weaponry and, you know, that requires high levels of understanding of the, the, the mechanics behind it, then you can probably have to go to school and, and get training for that. So um, although we have this bifurcated economy that separates us into highly educated middle skills and trained technical, a lot of the future is telling us that that middle skill and train is shrinking. So we we definitely know we're going to have to go back and get more education eventually. Yeah. Your report also says that 28% of all tasks in current jobs are at risk. So when you talk about those skills, so it's not just that they're disappearing, as you pointed out, it's like go back and get different skills for different tasks and we point out, a lot of other people point out, some of these tasks we may not even know exist yet. I think this is where the dilemma comes in, where a lot of people are worried about losing their job because they don't know if they can get those new skills. Well, you have to, you have to be nimble. And as an economist, I'm worried not only about acquiring the skills for the new job, but I'm also worried about who's going to come into those new jobs at a later date. We in the U.S. economy are an aging economy. We're an economy where most of the workers, you know, the baby boomers <laughs> have been threatening to retire for a long time. But eventually, you know, health care concerns and just aging is going gonna, is gonna to take over. So we're going to have a very sophisticated, very talented, very highly trained baby boom economy that's retiring and we're concerned about who's replacing them and the extent to which we are ramping up fast enough to train those workers. There's so many competing issues here. We, we have declines in enrollment in, in, in higher ed. We have huge amounts of student loans and student loan repayments that are, you know, are two of the issues you know, leading people to, to, to really um, give pause when it comes to deciding on higher ed. But we know that all of the trends point to the fact that if you want to remain relevant and if you want to keep your job and if you want to get the skills for those jobs, you might have to, to register for it. You might have to go to a community college. You might have to get an online training, that work-based training and in the office. There is the notion that by the time you, you leave high school and you throw that mortarboard in the air and you walk away and that's it, that's, that's, that's dead. You're going to have to pick it up, dust it off, and go back at various points in your life, and, and that's how you remain relevant. 
I think your point about the baby boomers threatening to retire is a good one too, because a lot of baby boomers are not retiring. And that's the part of the population that I have worried about the most is there's a certain level of ageism, you know, in hiring still, despite what, you know, we talk about and try to, as a society and try to eliminate, but it's still there. And the idea that there are people 45 plus still need to be trained for that new technology that is being brought into a company. I just saw a report from Generation saying that there is a willingness from this mid-career workforce, 45 plus is where they, uh, what their age is. But sometimes the bosses are like going, I, I don't know, maybe I need a younger person in here, more willing to adapt. So I think that's a bit of a societal dilemma as well. That's a great point. Let me speak to that bias. Um, so it is a bias and it, it is frankly against the law to discriminate based on age as a protective group, but it happens, right? Especially in smaller organizations where it's it's, it's much more difficult to, to push the envelope and to demonstrate that you are a victim of, of age discrimination. Um, but baby boomers, again, have this wealth of information and this, this, this wealth of, of training and experience that is going to be felt <laughs> if they were ever to leave the, um, the workforce en masse. And I think uh, in some ways, the COVID-19 pandemic was a little bit of a precursor of what that could mean because the baby boomers were the most vulnerable of the age groups and so required to pull themselves away. If you think of all the bus drivers and all the people in MTA and, you know, who just said, hey, my health and my life is at risk. I'm going to pull out and even if it's temporary, temporarily. And, and we found that SEPTA, New York, and those are the examples that I have at my fingertips, had to offer incentives to try to get them to come back out. I mean, financial incentives to train the next you know, set of sets of workers to do that job. So that ageism is 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 discriminatory, and it's 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 really going to bite a lot of us. You know, where if, if if you continue to do that, but I think that there's a lot of discrimination that um, millennials and um, younger workforce face as well, because there's this notion that they tend to be very self indulgent. And the work or the job that they do is, is secondary to their, their life balance. <laughs> it's more like life-life balance more than life-work balance. So there's some discrimination there where people might feel, I don't know, I hire this person and I'm not going to be able to see them, you know, when, when going gets tough because they'll definitely prioritize um, life over work. And, and we know the baby boomers have not done <laughs> <laughs> baby boomers, to some extent, uh, were the ones who created the, the problem with work-life balance from working all those extra hours and, and creating that idea of, of how you should work. So I take your point about uh, ageism and that perception, but I think it's going to be difficult, especially in this tight labor market, especially when it's hard to find those workers to, to exercise any of, of that power over them, because you're really going to going to lose out and feel it in the bottom line. I concede to your point as well. There is bias against millennials for exact reasons you say. And I, I really do hate that, again, as a society, that we do lump everybody into different categories like this because 
it's an individual thing. It's a person's own makeup as whether or not they are up to the job or not, no matter what their age is and that, you know, what, where their commitment is and what, what their skills are. And so I reject all of this. Let's, let's stop (laughs) being biased. You know, let's make sure that people have those opportunities, no matter what their age, young or old, my little high horse that I get on. Right. But I'm sincere about it too. I really feel like we need to address this and really just address people for who they are and the skills they bring to a job. Absolutely. And don't forget the original biases, which were gender bias against women in the workforce. And, you know, so kind of wrapping this up, you know, do you have any advice for workers, job seekers on where they should be looking for the jobs of the future or what they should be doing now? We've talked a little bit about it, but kind of you know, give me your final thoughts on it. So words of advice, I mean, you know, who's looking for jobs of the future? Anyone who's working now, they're in the job of the future, okay? If you are in college, I think you might be thinking, if you're a college student and you're, you're you know, 100% enrolled, you might be thinking of, okay, how can I position myself so when I jump out there, I can get the best thing that's possible? Because, you know, they have an added disadvantage there's many jobs asking for experience, but not allowing you to have the experience to get the experience. So they have that added disadvantage. And, and, and any words of wisdom I would offer to the young college grads is get an internship, hopefully paid, of course, uh, and, and in, in your field of study so that you can obtain those firm-specific knowledge so that by the time you actually graduate, you, you, you come in there with a little edge and you you sort of know what's required of that job, you know what the, the nature of that job and, and the, the, the office culture. And those are the things that you, those those soft intangibles that you learn on the job while you, you know, you can't get that in a, in a classroom at a, at a distance. And I think for the um, adult workers, the more mature workers, don't close your, your, your eyes and your ears to lifelong learning. I think all of these things are done incrementally and perhaps just the extra couple months to re-up in a certification can go a long way to, to make you much more marketable than the, the next person. So um, if we are just um, e- emotionally open to the notion of going back to, to school, not necessarily <laughs> sitting in the classroom, we're just getting the extra certification to get that job, then that's useful. And I think my very last point would be to employers that they themselves have to recognize that you need to invest in your human capital. I mean, machines break down, you, you pay to get them, you know, fixed, right? Your human capital is, is your resource, your, your human resource. You have to make sure that they are always equipped, pay for the training, to, you know, so that they can get that 2.0 and, 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 and add to the bottom line of your business. Nicole, thank you so much for talking about this subject and your report is great and I love your insight around it. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Ramona. I've been speaking with Dr. Nicole Smith, the Georgetown University Center on Education and Workforce, their chief economist and co-author of the new report, After Everything, which you can see on our website. I'm Ramona Schindelheim, editor-in-chief of Working Nation. Thank you for listening.